Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. I am Anthony Delaney. And I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And we all know that the Victorians were obsessed with death. A lot of that comes from Queen Victoria and her loss of Prince Albert. You only need to step inside one of their cemeteries to see the extent of this devotion to the dead. I'm thinking of Warriston Cemetery in Edinburgh, particularly here, where I often walk my dogs of a morning and see very dramatic scenes of women draped over headstones, stone women draped over headstones, or pain etched across faces that have been worked into the stonework. It's a really evocative place to dip into this Victorian obsession and idea of death. But the Victorian obsession with death did not end there, did it, Anthony? Nor were their treatments and commemoration of the dead confined to graveyards. Death photography was a 19th century phenomenon and one that, as photographic studios popped up across towns and cities and more and more people trained in the use of cameras, transcended class and wealth. But the works that resulted were not necessarily the morbid, horrifying depictions of death that you might imagine. So here to tell us more about this unsettling and now largely forgotten tradition actually is Brandy Scalace. Brandy is the author of Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher and Death's Summer Coat, what death and dying can tell us about life and living. Enjoy. What was it that drew you to this topic in the first place? Do you know? Do you, is there something in you that you're kind of going, I think that might be where this comes from? I do. So I say a little bit about this in, in the book that I wrote, and I've said it some in public. But basically, I grew up in a relatively impoverished area of the country where, and I'm in the United States, so there wasn't healthcare mm-hmm. in the way that you should have it. And both of my parents had very close brushes with death early on. So my father had a massive heart attack. He subsequently had several more. My mother had cancer, which she did beat, but was a a near thing. And I remember when I was around 12 years old, I would go to my parents' door at night to listen to make sure they were still breathing because I had an eight-year-old brother and I felt compelled, like, you know, that I would have to sort of take over somehow if I lost them. And there were a lot of other people who died in my family. So death wasn't one of those imaginary things. My partner 
The first person who died, he was like 38. <laughs> but my family, I, I lost people from the age of seven on. I lost a, a young cousin to in a violent way. I mean, so I, I knew what death was like. I'd been to many funerals. And so the reality that I might lose my parents when I was still a child was very, very real to me. And also the expense and the difficulty and the stress around trying to cover hospital bills was very real to me. So at a very early age, I began being interested in things like the, the Black Death, for instance. I, I was a very big fan of Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror. And I lived next to, I lived in an underground house next to a cemetery, which I suppose That'll do it. also yep. might have had something to do with it. <laughs> so sitting on a tombstone, reading about the Black Death, thinking about how you might lose your parents is a really good way to turn you into a death researcher later in life. That's pretty formative. <laughs> I'm loving that image, Brandy. That is, that is a pretty incredible image. So talk to me about how this idea of Victorian death photography comes to be and Talk to me a little bit about how this coincides with the birth of photography during this time period as well. It's a kind of a nice intersection of time, isn't it? It is. For all the, well, this is true of the Victorian period more generally. As you have advances in medicine and you have advances in technologies, and these technologies begin for the first time to be available to more people. So some of the first photography was daguerreotype photography, which is on a silver plate. And obviously, not everybody can afford that kind of thing. So you weren't necessarily taking photographs the way we do today. I mean, we really take it for granted, right? I bet you have 200 photos or more on your phone. Probably every listener has. We have such an ability to quickly take images of our pets, our children, our family members, ourselves with the selfies. That just wasn't financially feasible. So you have these this photography that is suddenly available and people are amazed by it. Like, wow, that's my image. But it's time consuming. You have to hold very still. The shutters, it wasn't like our shutter speeds of today. So they would open up the plate. The plate is going to receive the image using chemicals. And if you moved, you created a blurred image. You had to hold still for quite a long time. And that was an expensive process. Your children, it's very difficult to get your children to hold still for anything, right? But this photography allowed people to go, oh my gosh, look, I can have a true representation of what this person was like in life. And that was very exciting. But now imagine that you are a young mother and your child of three or four has died, which happened a lot, actually. The infant mortality rate was very, very high in the Victorian period. And you want to remember this infant. Of course, you don't have any images of them before they died, because that would be expensive and difficult to do. You still want to remember them. The next best thing is to photograph them after they are dead. And at the very least, they will hold still for you. I find this absolutely remarkable, Brandy, that in an age where death is very visible across society, in the home, in the in the street sometimes, this, this process of making death visible by photographing it, or is it a very personal thing that's specific to each person who's having the photograph made? Both. So well, actually, I would say it's it's more the second, because you're right, death was very visible. And this is partly because this idea of commodity culture, the Victorians also wore emblems of death. So for instance, black armbands if you couldn't afford an entire morning suit. And there were stages. So for instance, you didn't just wear black, 
you wore black for a certain period of time that would not reflect light, like you wore black crepe. Then you could wear black satin, which did reflect light. Then you could wear gray. Then you could wear blue. So there was actually, if you could afford to have a, a wardrobe like that, there was a way to tell the entire world how long you had been mourning and perhaps how deep the mourning was. And this was popularized by Queen Victoria, who actually wore mourning weeds after her husband died until her own death many years later. So you could see death everywhere. Death was already present, but you had no means of of making that person present for you the way we think of today. You know, we all have images of our grandparents or parents that we may have lost. They didn't have that. So with the with the advent of photography, you who couldn't afford to hire a painter, right? You could actually have a representation of this person that you loved in your home not only as somebody you could remember, but also as a, a sort of tribute to them. It was like a celebration of the fact that you loved and cared for this person. You mentioned Queen Victoria there, Brandy, and I think that was one of the images that was coming into my mind as you were speaking about this kind of turning mourning into an act of iconography almost. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how how fashionable mourning became so that it's influencing this act of death photography. Was it something that almost took on a a new lease of life following the performance that Victoria was carrying out? You know, for a book that I researched, I found some fascinating details. So what begins as her own attempt to show how deeply she cared for her husband and what a loss it was becomes a great way to sell things. So there were magazines that you know, would literally have advertisements like, you know, don't be caught in bad morning clothes, you know, show that you really loved your loved ones <laughs> um, with expenses. And and they were even fashion. So they would come out like, don't be caught dead in last year's morning wear. You know, you want to have headline, the very latest. <laughs> and they are set up exactly the way you'd expect fashion ads to be set up, except it's for morning clothes or morning jewelry. So people who sold clothing, people who sold uh, jewelry and art, and photographers themselves, they they really took advantage of this. And then it became, I hate to say this, sort of a keeping up with the Joneses. How long did you mourn? You know, um, Did you drape your mirrors in black? And so there was a funny way in which as it was visible, it was already visible, but now it's visible in a way that people can kind of judge how much you make even. Like, oh, they only have black armbands. Clearly they couldn't afford an entire morning suit. I read letters where a woman was distressed that she couldn't afford morning gloves. Like she managed to get the other things together. So there's pressure to mourn correctly, which is something... I think these days the pressure to quote unquote mourn correctly tends to come from the medical community because we have a tendency to pathologize grief. But there was a pressure to what you were going to wear and how you were going to do it, how long you were going to mourn, how many people were going to be at the funeral, all of that. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. 
So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And I'm Matt Lewis. And all this month on Gone Medieval, we're delving deep into the pivotal moments that shaped the destiny of England. The Battle of Hastings. Three men struggle for supremacy. The Saxon king, Harold Godwinson. The Viking warlord, Harold Hardrada. And the ambitious Norman duke, William the Conqueror. So join me, Eleanor Yanaga. And me, Matt Lewis, for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's come then, Brandy, to the photographs themselves or some of the photographs mm-hmm. themselves. I'm looking at one right now, so I'm going to describe it for you and then we'll we'll talk a little bit more generally about what kind of poses might have been acceptable or expected. So the, the image that I'm looking at now is in black and white, obviously enough. And I have a woman who has obviously enough passed away. I guess it's more obvious that because we know it. She's sitting in what seems to be a rocking chair and behind her you can see some panelling and also some um, wallpaper on the wall. Her eyes are open and she is looking off to the left as I view the photograph. She's dressed in a high-necked, probably black, but very dark-coloured blouse and then a dark-coloured skirt as well. One of her hands is in her lap and the other has been staged on one of the armrests of the chair. I said at the start that it, of that description that it looks like it's obvious enough to me that she has passed. But actually, if I didn't know and I just came across that picture, maybe I wouldn't have known. So is that a typical pose? Is that a typical picture that you could expect in this genre? I know that photo well, actually. Um, the photo appears in my book and I know from whom it comes. So I worked with a collector of rare photography and mostly he collected daguerreotypes. That one is not a daguerreotype, though several of the ones that I've seen are. And he had something like 300, 400 of these, right. which have subsequently gone to a museum called the Dittrich Medical History Center and Museum. And I, I got to look over a table of just so many of these images, just all of them spread out. And it is absolutely typical. Um, They frequently posed these persons as though they were alive and they intended them to look as though they were alive. That one, you're right. She, there, But there is a wistful expression. I mean, you could almost imagine that she was deep in thought if you didn't know yeah. that, that she had passed on. It's quite common to put them in settings that they would have been in life. So it's very possible that this was someone sitting in their own living room or parlor. If I'm thinking of the same one, there looks to be some um, embroidery or some sort of handicrafts about, and those could have been hers. And so it might be also a staging of here's this person, here's what they were up to, here's what they did as hobbies or handicrafts. These are representations of them. That was quite common as well. Posing of deceased children with their toys, for instance. But possibly for me, the most unusual are the photos that mix the dead children with living children or dead persons with living people. And those are very strange because it becomes very difficult to tell Mm -hmm. (laughs) which 
of the people, you know, it's a morning photograph. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I, the, the one that, that most startled me, which I believe is in the Burns archive, is there's two elder parents seated and standing behind them with a hand on each shoulder is a teenage girl. And I, of course, assumed that one of the parents had died, but in fact, it's the standing figure oh. who wow. has died. <laughs> How have they propped her up? They propped, they, yeah. So many of these, you asked me earlier about the practicalities. These photographers would have various props to hold people up, to pose their arms, to, uh, in, in our age, we're, we're so, we're very death phobic and we mm -hmm. think, oh no, they start rotting right away. Oh dear. That's not true. Actually, a body takes a long time to start really decomposing. So you have three, three days, four days. And we think that rigor mortis happens immediately. Well, rigor mortis happens and then it relaxes again. So yeah. actually bodies are posable. So they would have little sort of coat hook looking things to stand people up. Sometimes they would paint the eyes over the lids. I've heard of this. Yes. Well, one of the things you can't, there's a lot of things you can fake. And the reason that when you see a body in an open casket, the eyes are closed is the one thing that we just can't really fake our eyes. Your eyes shrink and shrivel. They're mostly water. So as the body dries out over a course of even hours to days, the eyes become not nice to look at. So the eyes are either closed, but in this case, they wanted her to seem like she was alive. And so they will sometimes paint over the lids and occasionally actually make changes to the photographs themselves afterwards. So there's a couple different ways that it gets done. But that one's very disturbing. <laughs> I think I've seen an example of, of people who had painted the eyes onto the photograph mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. the picture. And the... that's so interesting because that raises so many issues there about the sort of removal once again from the body and the layer of distance as well as commemoration that the photograph provides, I suppose, because people mm. would be then looking at the photograph after the body has been removed, you know, and it's something to keep right. and kind of look back on. And there's something there about the intimacy of posing a body and then mm. the non-intimacy, the distance that a photograph can create, really. It's it's a strange, mm -hmm. a strange sort of compromise. I don't know. Brandy, I don't know what you think, but like there's also something about the proximity to the dead, right? In terms of, I know mm. in Ireland, we still very much wake the dead. And so we... I mean, it's probably a bit of a strange example, but when my grandmother passed away, my husband came into the hospital to, you know, just see the family. And but he didn't realize that her body was still in the bed. Ah. And he he's English and he'd never been to awake and he'd never seen a dead body. And so he was very much taken aback, whereas we as children are slightly forced, I will say, into wake <laughs> rooms where there is a dead body on display. And obviously this is happening in Victorian times too, where there's a proximity to death that is not so much taboo. Right. And I think what I would say about that, which also gets to your point about the combination of intimacy and distance, is that frequently people died at home. We have sort of sanitized, scrubbed death, so to speak, especially here in the United States, which is where I'm located. So on one hand, we do have open caskets here, which is almost de rigueur, right? Everybody sort of has the open casket model mm -hmm. typically in the United States, but it's so removed. So a person is ill, they leave the house and go to the hospital. And often you don't see them again, or if you see them in the hospital, it's sort of very sterile and there's white walls and there's people and it's clean and it's tidy and it's there's still this barrier of medicine in between you. And then you don't see them again until they are treated and preserved and dressed and in an open casket. So there is a, a lack of reality 
that happens when when we do that process. And I remember as a child, so part of my family is from West Virginia, and my West Virginian side of the family are Scots-Irish, and so we did do wakes. My very first funeral had a wake, but then the next one didn't, and it was so I didn't understand why. I was like, why didn't we do the thing? <laughs> it felt very, because it felt so much more alien in a way to see someone when they were sick and then suddenly see this very propped up kind of posed body in a casket, you know, sometimes weeks later. Whereas when um, when my grandfather had passed, similar to you, we had a wake for the body. And so, and it was in an actual parlor of someone's home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we weren't even in a hospital, you know, you're just there and there's, <laughs> there's granddad. And I think that that intimacy is something I, I sort of took for granted. But in the Victorian period, you also died at home and your relatives washed your body and dressed your body and prepared your body. And that still happens cross-culturally, but not typically in the United States or or England or you know or Europe, et cetera. So I think that's a one level further. You've you've touched, handled, bathed, you're aware of sort of the messier, less nice things about yeah. bodies that typically we reserve for undertakers and, you know, funeral directors and people who work in morgues, etc. I think the domestic setting as well of the photographs in particular is so interesting because looking at the same one that we've just been discussing of the woman sat in the, I think it's a rocking chair and she has some of her mm -hmm. embroidery or some kind of craft work behind her, that there is so much of that home on display and the objects that she's mm. associated with that we've got to remember as well that <laughs> that setting would remain the same. The seat would probably still be there. Her work might still be there. Mm -hmm. And so the photograph kind of provides a link to that environment. And it's a way maybe, it's quite a ghostly way of placing that person back in the environment after they have left it, right. whether they died there or right. not, that you can kind of reinsert them mm -hmm. into an objectscape that still exists. Absolutely. And I will say, I just want to say not all photographs do that. And one of the things that I noticed, there was one particular image that stood out to me a lot in my research, which was a child had died and the family, they took a photograph with the infant while the infant was in its coffin. And that's a very different kind of image. This is an image that is not pretending that the child lived. Mm -hmm. This is an image that is actually preserving the fact that the child died. And there are a couple of those, which I think is very interesting and, and goes to, I mean, of course, it's the family's wishes typically that you're seeing. One particularly upsetting photo that I saw was a photographer took a photo of an infant through a window in a quarantine house because oh, wow. it had been quarantined against contagious disease. So, you know, there's a vast array of the way these things were done. And only very occasionally do we know what the thoughts of the people are. But once in a while, one of those photos will have information on the back. So there was a set of two photos. One of a gentleman in a coffin, and then another picture of the same gentleman posed as though living. And the back of the photograph of him in the coffin actually had notes, probably that the photographer wrote down, probably from the family, saying things like, you know, this is how he wears his mustache. And, you know, and, and it does remind me a little bit of when you, if you're going to do an open casket in the US, you typically, you pick out the clothing or you say, this is how they would have worn their hair or et cetera. So that was also part of it. And every once in a while, you get a glimpse of what the family sort of wanted from those photos. But usually we just have to guess. Can I ask as well, it just occurred to me, I don't know the answer to this. Where were these photographs 
meant to be displayed? Was it something for private consumption that would have been maybe inserted into a Bible or was this framed and put on a mantelpiece, hung on the wall? For the Momento Mori photos, the photos of the death that you were grieving, they were frequently put right up in the house. They would have them prominently displayed. Sometimes they would also be draped with a kind of black fabric to kind of represent when it comes to more personal, smaller memento mori, that was more private. Even if you wore it as a jewel, for instance, like a brooch or a ring, only you knew who that hair belonged to or that you know item belonged to. So braided hair in a locket, is that's where that more personal side might be located, whereas the photographs were intended for public display usually. I have seen a few very, very small ones that were clearly meant to either be sort of pocket versions, or it almost reminds me of the small icons people would carry if they were in Orthodox faiths. They're about that size. But normally, people were intending to share these with with other people. I guess an interest in showing bodies as being lively in some way, as being sort of reanimated, mm. or, you know, even the, the Memento Mori pictures with the eyes open, mm-hmm. there's there's an element of sort of trying to imitate life whilst making it very clear that these people are dead in most instances. So why? <laughs> What's this fascination with post-mortem liveliness? What, what is that about? I think for most of the grief portraits that were taken, it was probably hoping that you could create an image you could display that people wouldn't necessarily know that the child had already died. For instance, I'm, I'm saying child because I'm thinking of, it was an image of three children, two of them are alive and one of them is dead, posed together as though they are playing together. And I'm trying to imagine what that does to you as the other two children, you know, but they were more familiar and more intimate with death than we are. So perhaps it wasn't a big deal, but that it was something that if you put that on a wall, to share, there's a point at which it ceases to be a grief object and begins to be, you know, a family portrait. So for instance, I have photographs of my grandparents and I put them on display, but they were taken when they were alive and doing things that live people do. It would never occur to me to, even if I had one, to display a picture of them after they had gone looking like they had gone, because then you're stuck in that. Grief is a, a process and we never get through that process. It's a long process. It's I've often compared grieving for a loved one like an amputation of some part of your body. You don't go back to the way you were before, but you learn to live with it. So I suspect that the living photographs that are meant to look living for people in that time period are photographs you can continue to look at after you've processed through that grief and, and come out, you know, in a different space. And now you can look at it with sort of joy and remembrance in the way I look at the pictures taken of my grandparents when they were alive. Mm. I, I was trying to think if it's gone somewhere today. And I was just thinking this isn't directly comparable. But it, it, initially I was thinking, you know, like some people put pictures of the person when they were alive on the tombstone. Mm, but mm-hmm. equally, I just recalled that in the last few years, I will not be naming names, in the last few years, I was definitely at a wake where I saw somebody use their smartphone to take a picture of the body in the coffin as it was being waked. And I remember being quite shocked at that as well and and thinking, what are they doing? But it's nothing got to do with me. But it's, you know, that's in a way death photography, right? Um, It certainly is. You know, you might have seen that there's a bit of a controversy happening right now over the display of human remains in the Mudra Museum and not just in the Mudra, it's the Hunterian. There's lots of other places Mm -hmm. that are facing this right now. It's whether or not you have consent to do such things. And so Memento Mori photography was common in the Victorian period. If you were 
ill or dying, you would probably have a sense that, yes, this is something that they were going to do. Maybe you even spoke to your loved ones about it if it wasn't a sudden death because you might have had input. We live in a culture where no one photographs the, like, that's not, you know, we know that's not appropriate. You don't do that. So it's very unlikely that anyone would die thinking that their body was going to be photographed later on, apart from, say, pathological or forensic reasons. So it's some of that comes down to consent. Like who gives consent for you to take a photograph of a body in a coffin? That it's touchy, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, we're gonna have a wrap up soon, which I could keep talking about this forever. But before we do, <laughs> I do want to ask you one thing. What do you think, as a, as a parting question, what do you think we can learn today about death from looking into death in the past? Well, one thing, and I have said this on many occasions that I think we should learn, is that rituals are not something that is silly. They are very important to how we process our grief. And we have lost a lot of rituals, partly because we're a much less religious society than we once were. But you can't really grieve wrong. And so I always tell people, take a look at what works, what worked in your past, what worked in the past. Look at other cultures. Choose the things that allow you to process through grief in the best way for yourself, because you cannot grieve wrong unless you don't do it at all. Thanks for listening to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. We have a little request of you before you go. We'd love to hear if you've enjoyed an episode, if you have an idea for a future episode. Do you have a local story? Do you have a particular moment in history that you would like Anthony and I to look into? If that's the case, get in touch with us at afterdark at historyhit.com. We want to hear from you. But until then... Have a good day, have a good evening, have a good night, and you'll hear from us soon again. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.